Welcome to the newest episode of the Needless Things Podcast, where we talk about toys, movies, music, and all manner of pop culture dorkery. I'm your host, Phantom Troublemaker, and you can find the Needless Things Podcast on iTunes and on Stitcher, as well as at NeedlessThingsSite.com, where in addition to the podcast, you can find five days a week worth of articles about that stuff I mentioned before. As a matter of fact, I'm going to talk about a couple of the things we've been writing about lately. X-Files is back. Uh, they kicked it off with a two-night premiere of the first two episodes of the six-part season, or miniseries, I guess, and I enjoyed them a lot. Uh, the first episode, there was a lot of expo- exposition. It moved at a breakneck speed, but everybody fell right back into their roles. It was very exciting seeing all the characters return and interact and... The passage of time was apparent, but at the same time, they were very comfortable in what they were doing. If you want to read more about that, Beth put up a piece today, which is the 26th, and you can go to NeedlessThingsSite.com and check that out. But we're probably going to be doing an episode about it once all six episodes uh, have aired, because I want to talk about it. I I... Love the X-Files, but I was never, I was never obsessed with it. I have not seen maybe half the episodes, something like that. Uh, I gave up, certainly stopped caring when Robert Patrick, excuse me, came onto the show. But, uh, you know, if it, if it was on and I was home, I'd watch it, but it was on at a time in my life where I was out more than I was home. So it was just one of those things that I, I didn't catch. All the time. So, moving on, comic book shows. Lots of big stuff happening. As a matter of fact, such big stuff that tomorrow night, or I'm sorry, Thursday night, which will be yesterday to you guys, we will be with the Needless Things Irregulars recording an episode about the comic book shows, what's working, what's not working. And I'll say one thing. I had a revelation about Supergirl watching it this past Monday. The whole family likes to watch it together. My son particularly likes it. Uh, I think he might have a little crush on Melissa Benoist. Or, uh, you know, it's it, her, her last name, a little rough for me. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how that should be pronounced. I feel like Benoist is it, but that sounds weird. Uh, but anyway, I think that, and I'll repeat this on the episode when it goes up two weeks from now, I think that she is the best superhero on television right now. And I'll get more into that on the superhero episode. So this week, Outer Space Man, Gary Schaefer, who now is the guy that owns the Outer Space Man brand, along with Mel Burkrant, who is the guy that created the Outer Space Man, they are doing new things. If you are, are in the, the toy know, so to speak, you know that in 2008, the Four Horsemen started doing new Outer Spacemen figures. You know that in 1968, the first Outer Spacemen came out, and we'll talk about that in the show. But things have, have changed. Gary has the license now. They're doing new things. It's very exciting, and Gary is on the show today. And Gary 
man, that guy is a wellspring of information. We could have talked much longer than we did, but I I didn't want to, you know, I wanted the point to be the outer space men. We'll get into more stuff with him on another episode, I feel fairly certain. But today's is a lot of fun, a lot of information, and just nice memories about classic toys. And, you know, not necessarily, you don't really have to be familiar with or love the Outer Space Men, although you will once you discover them. It's just talking about classic toys, things from your childhood. It's it's that kind of thing. It's a good feeling. It's a fun feeling. Uh, and we, we pointed out in the show that, that rediscovery is just amazing. Oh my gosh, I had this when I was a kid. Oh. And and granted it is followed up by the melancholy of I don't have it anymore, which is my case with a lot of things. Uh, I don't know that I've talked about it on the show before, perhaps on Toy Stories. Uh, I have at some point or other, but I had pretty much everything Star Wars, uh, the original Kenner Star Wars. And I had a lot of G.I. Joe. At least, it's interesting, going back and looking at the years of G.I. Joe, and and it's funny how much longer it went past when I kind of stopped collecting. I've got about five years worth, maybe, from 82 to probably 86 or 7, I think. I, when I was looking at Yojo.com, which is a fantastic site, by the way, uh, if you have not been there, you should go there if you're a fan of G.I. Joe and check it out because they have amazing listings of everything ever made. And sometimes I'll just sit down and look at, like, 1983, look at all the figures and vehicles and whatever that came out. Fantastic site. Uh, definitely want to put them over. Definitely go check them out. But I, I looked and I was like, oh, my gosh, my collection kind of ends at a very specific year, and I can't remember off the top of my head right now what year it was, but it was first four or five years of G.I. Joe. I, I think it was the year that Defiant came out is the last year that I owned anything from the line. But it was it, it's interesting that it went so far beyond that, but just looking at that stuff and, and knowing that I had most of it and what happened, if, if you guys haven't heard this before, then here it is. If you have, then I apologize, but I'll try and be succinct with it. All my toys when I was a kid, uh, when I got older, they went up in the attic. Because there just wasn't anywhere else to put them. And unfortunately, living in Georgia, the attic gets up over 100 degrees during the summer. And what that does is it warps larger things like the USS Flag, Millennium Falcon, the Death Star playset. All of that stuff was just badly warped, essentially useless. Uh, it got discolored a bit, and also it wasn't packed all that carefully because, of course, being a stupid kid... You know, when my mom would ask, hey, what do you want? You know, what are we doing with this stuff? Are you, you're not playing with this anymore. It's not out anymore. You know, what do you want to do? Oh, well, it's fine. Leave it there. And left it to her, essentially, to pack it up. And she just threw it in a box. And eventually, some of that stuff, the stuff that did not get warped or whatever, that was preserved... Uh, was bought by other people at yard sales. And it's funny because for years my mom swore she never sold any of my stuff. And then as things came up, hey, mom, whatever whatever happened to that Terror Drone? 
that wasn't up there. Oh, uh, I think we might have sold that at yard sale. What? What? But you said never yard sale. Uh, what about the Death Star? I, I mentioned the Death Star playset several times because it's one of the things that I just really hate not having now because I loved that thing. Any, I mean, it's a multi-tiered playset that has all the stuff you need to recreate New Hope. I mean, it's just... Yes, it's got a lot of cardboard. Yes, it's a little on the cheap side. But, man, what a fantastic and fun playset. It's one of the reasons why I liked uh, the Ninja, the, the current Ninja Turtles Turtle Layer playset is because it did the same thing. It had multiple tiers of play, and, and I love that. And, and not a lot of sets have done that since then. And, I mean, we don't even really have playsets now. So uh, just one of those things that stuck out for me. So... You know, eventually it came out. Yes, a lot of stuff got sold at garage sales. Yes, a lot of stuff I got up there because the flag was too many pieces and it was just a mess. Broken pieces, warped pieces, missing pieces. It, it was all, so all of that stuff just at one point I had a very limited amount of time when my parents moved to go through it and I just didn't have the time and the energy to to do what should have been done with it, which is go through it, separate out the good stuff, separate out the bad stuff. And uh, and honestly, at that point, I wasn't on the best of terms with my parents, so spending a lot of time at the house was not desirable for me. And I thought, you know, I was, I was in an apartment as well. I mean, there were all kinds of factors. I, I had nowhere to put any of that stuff. So, you know, it, it wasn't just my parents putting it in the attic. It wasn't just yard sales. It was, all, you know, it was all of us... Uh, working together to lose all those wonderful toys that I had. But, you know, that's that's how it is. That's how things work out. And now the good news is I've got all new toys, and there are a few places where I'm going to fill in holes. And I'm going to be doing that at Joe Lanta and the Great Atlanta Toy Convention this March in, guess, guess where? Atlanta. Because <laughs> that's not in the uh, title enough times. So Joe Lanta is coming back. March 12th and 13th at the Marriott Century Center. It is the very best toy convention in the Southeast. I'm super excited to be part of it again. And I have my list. This this is something you might want to do if you are attending Joe Lanta or really any convention. Because anywhere you go is going to have toys and collectibles and stuff. I have made my list of the things that I am looking for at Joe Lanta this year. I'm going to stick to my list. I'm not going to go outside of it. It's the stuff that I want and what's on it in humanoids, battle beasts, uh, WWF Hasbro figures, and that's it. A couple of more things may get added between now and then just because I know I'm not going to find a lot of those things. In humanoids, there are only a few things that I have to have. Uh, tendril, I need Tendril. That's, that's the have to have. Everything else is kind of, if I find it at a good price, I'll pick it up. Uh, otherwise, I'll take my time looking for it. Same thing with Battle Beasts. Like those, if I find them for a good price, sweet, I'll, I'll pick some up. But if that's not the case, I, I can be patient. And, and that's the magic of collecting 80s toys or any older toys is they're out there. What's made is made. Uh, they're not getting, you know, they're they're already out in the wild. So... You don't have to worry about them selling out like you do current stuff. Granted, you know, current stuff 20 years from now is going to be the same way. But right now, lots of people collect lots lots of current things. So you have to worry about market scarcity. 
But with the older stuff, it's out there all the time. eBay, uh, shopgoodwill.com, which let me just drop that knowledge bomb on you. If you haven't been there, go there. Uh, since you guys listen to the show, I feel like you deserve that little nugget of joy. And it's not like eBay where there's constantly stuff you want, but you can hit up shopgoodwill.com and find some incredible deals on old toys in surprisingly good shape. Uh, and that's all I'm going to say about that. You guys heard it here because you listened to the show. There you go. Uh, but, you know, old stuff is more fun. You can be patient with it. I've waited 30 years to to have inhumanoids. I, I can wait longer. I'll just keep going. Uh, so, Joe Lanta's coming up. We're going to have Martin from Joe Lanta on the show in a couple of weeks talking about this year's convention. Go ahead and book your room now if you want to stay down there. Otherwise, just get your tickets. Plan on being there. And I think that's about all I got for you today. I went a little longer because last week I didn't even have an intro because we're pressed for time and uh, storage space for the site. So now it is time to go straight into Mr. Gary Schaefer. We're going to talk about the Outer Space Men. Alright, Phantom Maniacs, today I have another exciting toy episode. This is something that happened very, very quickly, uh, as these things often do, and it's really awesome because just a few years ago I started collecting a toy line called the Outer Spacemen from the Four Horsemen. This is not the original iteration of the Outer Spacemen. Uh, it is a remake by the Four Horsemen, who we all know are some of the most incredible and innovative sculptors and creators of toys. So these toys, I've got some of them. I needed some more. And there's a sale on theouterspacemen.com, which is a site that you definitely need to go check out because it details a lot about the toy line. And in the process of buying those figures, I ended up talking to today's guest, a Mr. Gary Schaefer. Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you, Phantom. I'm psyched to be here. Uh, so I bought some figures, and you sent a very cool email about, you know, hey, thanks for buying the figures. We're really excited about the line. Uh, we dig the line. And as I typically do, because you don't know if you don't ask, I sent my shot-in-the-dark response, hey, want to come on my podcast? And you, of course, said, yes, I would like to come on the podcast. So you're here today. And I would just to establish things, I want to tell you how I came to the Outer Space Men, uh, because I know your story is, is very different from mine. Uh, certainly you, you have a closer connection to the Outer Space Men than I do. But my, the first time, I, I'm 39 years old, been collecting toys my entire life. But I think the first I'd heard of the Outer Space Men was in an article that Toy Fair magazine did Probably mid two thousands. I couldn't find an exact date on it, but they they like to do those retrospectives, and they detailed the original color forms outer spacemen, and I thought they looked incredible. Uh, I think it might have even been kind of as an addendum to an article they did on Major Matt Mason. 
but you were there in the beginning. What is what is your history, or what is the history of the Outer Spacemen? My history and the history of the Outer Spacemen are quite a concurrent event. As the first shipments came into the United States from Hong Kong in 1968, they ended up in uh, this tiny little corner store called Kenny's Toy Store in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, I was living in Brooklyn at the time with my grandmother, my dad had passed away just a few short years earlier, and my mom relocated us to Brooklyn to live with her mother, and I went to public school there, and there was this tiny little toy store on the corner named Kenny's. Literally, it had low-voltage lighting. The aisles were as tight as can be, floor-to-ceiling, stacked with a roar of frightening lightning and Major Matt Mason and, oh and zeroids and, and, and things that if you had a time machine and could go back to Kenny's toy store, you would absolutely make a fortune if you could even part with the extraordinary icons that were sitting on those shelves with sawdust on the floor and an <laughs> old couple that were born, you know, that were, that were each born in the year one that just ended up with this <laughs> tiny little dark toy store. And it's something out of your, your wildest dreams and imaginations that you'd like to travel back to. But on the shelves were these blister-carded monsters, these aliens, the first that anyone had ever seen. And I remember distinctly that um, I was able, I was allowed to get two of them, and it was Commander Comet, and it was uh, Zodiac. And I went home to my grandmother's house, and I sat on her carpet in front of the gold couch with plastic all over the pillows, because if you sat on those with your shorts, you stuck to it. <laughs> it was a horrible experience. So most of my generation grew up sitting on carpets. Uh, because you couldn't sit on furniture because of the plastic covers. So, and I remember distinctly opening up the packages and playing with my first outer spaceman. It was such an extraordinary experience that I screamed and tantrumed and threw myself on the floor and held my breath and kicked my feet until my mother took me back to Kenny's and I got the rest of the collection. Now, it was a, it was a moment that, you know, that I'll never forget. Matter of fact, two of those original toys that, uh, that I was lucky enough to get back in 68, I actually have sitting here on my desk, my very first two Outer Spacemen, at least two that's left from the collection. Now, when I opened it up and started playing with it, I'm telling you that I knew something fantastic was going on. But like every kid that suffered the, the turmoil of summer camp and coming home to a, to a house that had been emptied by an adult getting rid of comic books and, and non-sport cards oh, and no. baseball cards and toys, the the Outer Spacemen were gone oh. for a very short period of time. Now, what the reality of the situation was, and this is unfortunate, is that while all of America was enjoying the first 500,000 units that came in from Hong Kong, at the same time, Neil Armstrong was strapping on his suit and exiting the lunar module. Now, once, once Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon in July of 69, unfortunately, that was the end of Space Toys. Now, imagine what was going on, and I'll tell you why it was the end, but let's, let's go back in time and imagine. Sure, sure. Mattel had this line of toys, the Mattel's Men in Space. It was called Major Matt Mason. It was an unbelievably successful franchise. They had four astronauts the second African-American character ever, by the way, in toys. The first was the G.I. Joe African-American, but Jeff Long was the second. He was part of Matt Mason's team. He had accessories. He had a space station. He had cars. He had vehicles. He had everything in the world. And Mattel 
was the second company to do $10 million a year on a toy line. They were rivaling the newly licensed Batman by NPP, because that was before DC Comics. So NPP had licensed out the Bat logo, and everybody wanted space toys. So we had Major Matt Mason, the Zeroids, anything related to G.I. Joe space, including the space capsule, Billy Blastoff, and then the Outer Spaceman. And this was a wildly successful property for a ridiculous company called Colorforms that literally (laughs) had no business being in this side of the fence. Well, and that's, uh, from my perspective, even when I first read about the Outer Space Men, they were referred to as a Colorforms property, which was bizarre to me because, you know, growing up, my experience with Colorforms was the little reusable stickers, the little vinyl stickers that you stuck on a piece of paper with a background on it. I never even knew that they had toys. They didn't. And Harry Kislevitz, <laughs> Harry Kislevitz, the owner of Colorforms, um, saw the $10 million that Mattel was making. And he literally went berserk, and he wanted to penetrate that market. And believe me, I'm paraphrasing, but he (laughs) wanted to penetrate that market. So he goes and he gets a hold of his number one freelance artist, Mel Bernkrant. Wasn't even a Colorforms employee. He was just a freelance artist that was pushing out 20 and 30 of the little vinyl two-dimensional diorama peel-and-stick sets a year. Because Colorforms basically had every license under the sun and was pushing the sets out as fast as they can make them. Right, right. So Harry Kislevitz says to Melbourne Grant, go home, get in this market, I want to compete. Mel, having been an art student most of his life and the biggest Disney enthusiast in the world, that today my adopted father that he is, and I love him so much, His Mickey Mouse collection is the largest on the planet, and I could not even begin to assess the value of this extraordinary lifetime achievement, which is his collection. His 10,000 visible uh, toys on display in his home, lot which can be seen on either my Twitter page or my Instagram page or my website, is probably been seen by some of the most incredible personalities in the world by invitation only. Oh. And I'm so fortunate enough to have seen this collection. I'm so fortunate enough to know Mel Bernkrant. Sure, because yeah. When he, because he was, a, he was an art student in Paris for a long time. He got home and he had incredible images in his mind and he had known so much and seen so much and studied so much abroad and he was just brilliant, retaining everything well, artistic imaginable in the world. So I remember to mention this. I want our listeners to be sure to check out Mel Burncrant.com. Uh, it is one of the best toy websites I have ever seen because it details Mel's uh, drawings and notes for the Four Horsemen Outer Space Line. And it's the most in-depth look at toy creation I've ever seen. It's incredible. And it also, and you can also walk through the timeline of his life and walk through the timeline of the of the Mickey collection. Um, it's really just comic character related from the 20s, 30s, and 40s. But what you'll see is probably some of the most incredible imagery in the world. Mel actually took 18 months to photograph every single toy in his house oh. and build the website so that people can see through just an historical record alone what is in that house and what is in his collection. To give you an idea, before he moved to Beacon, which is uh, which was uh, the home he lived in, thanks to the Outer Spaceman's royalties. He was living in New York City, and Disney had sent a representative to Mel's home and uh, the, because they had heard of the collection. The first words 
out of this expert's mouth when he walked into Mel and Eunice's home and looking at the lecture, looking at the collection, the first words out of his mouth was, this is it. And Mel and Eunice looked at each other and laughed because most of it was still in storage because the apartment in New York couldn't house it. When, two years later, he came back from Michael Eisner, who was the young CEO of Disney at the time, he went back to Michael Eisner, who was interested in purchasing the collection, and his then words right out of his mouth to Michael Eisner were, you can't afford it. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, That's beautiful. So that's a great, great story, you know, for Mel. But, you know, realize he sat down in 1968 and – or late 67, early 68. He sat down and basically created these seven original outer spacemen. They were representative of each of their planets in our solar system, representing the best of the best their planets have to offer. They were the brightest, the strongest, the bravest. Um, The card backs contain the open-ended story basically biography of each character, which gives you an idea of the extraordinary lives that the characters live. It actually was the segue and still continues to be the segue for my graphic novel and any other story that can be written because it's such a wonderful small story that anything in the world can be built on. And Mel, of course, wrote this. And Mel's concepts and designs, which again you can see on my site, his site, or Instagram on my on my on my Instagram page, you know, his insight, his brilliance, and his ability was such that he created these seven what I consider to be omnipresent aliens. And I mean omnipresent because they came to him, and you know, he had very little trouble writing them down and creating them. It was as though they came to him, mm-hmm. and then they came to me. And then they came to generations and generations yet to come as they are still coming to people who look at them and say there's something so familiar, there is something so intriguing, so compelling that I've got to look more and then I've got to own them and then I want to learn about them and I want to study them and I want to know about them. And I could tell you, I could tell you that the line when I first began this phantom, when I began this 20 years ago with Mel, maybe, maybe there were 200 baby boomers that kind of remembered the outer spacemen, because I'll get to that, you know, demise in a minute. They kind of remembered the outer spacemen for that one year they were out before man stepped on the moon, ending the life of space toys. And they were living in mommy's basement, these baby boomers. They were eating the neighborhood children. And, <laughs> and, and they went crazy when I first started to get involved and, and, and building the brand and showing up at the toy shows and the comic cons. And they went crazy. Well, today, we've got over a quarter of a million people in the Outer Spaceman database. The Outer Spaceman action figures are on every continent on the planet. I have sent from South Korea to Sub-Saharan Africa, Central and Eastern Europe, all throughout the UK, South America, and the Middle East. Forget Canada and the U.S. They absorb them with each new uh, release that I come up with. But, but, but I can honestly say the outer spacemen are now a global property, and they continue to grow every single year. And we are, which I'll talk about as well, coming up soon on the 50th anniversary. So let's go back and understand that the outer spacemen came out. 500,000 units came from Hong Kong into the United States, which is not a lot. That's when you do the math, because there were seven. That's only about 70,000 carded carded characters that came into the U.S. Yeah, that would be referred to as a limited run today. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And back then, that was only the first boatload that came over. Now, that is also why 
50 years later, so few carded examples exist and why they're so expensive. I mean, I have probably sold about a dozen carded sets over the past 10 or 12 years, and my prices are now up and getting, you know, in the mid, uh, in the, depending upon, con- depending upon condition, it's somewhere between 15 and 20 for a really good set, but the mint stuff is above 20,000 for a complete set. Sure. So, the uh, the demise of the outer spaceman was remarkable as everybody was loving them and Mel bought his house and the world is going outer spaceman crazy. Mel is busy building the second series, a series of six, one representing Mercury, which was not represented in the original seven, and Earth was never represented until I came along. But but uh, the second series of six, which were infinitely more complex. Some were battery operated. One was glow in the dark. One was enormous compared to even uh, Cyclops. Uh, Cyclops was enormous compared to even Colossus Rex. And each had another incredible story, but they were from different places. One was from the center of the Earth, Hollow Earth. One was from beyond the Milky Way. And one was from Alpha Centauri. And one was from the fourth dimension. I mean, it was an incredible array of characters, infinitely more complex, but the night man stepped on the moon, we basically survived. Since we got there and nothing was there, and no creature leapt up from the moon and ripped off Neil Armstrong's face and ate him, <laughs> and, you know, we basically conquered space. And I promise you, Phantom, you could walk down the street at any time and ask anybody how many times we've been to the moon. They will say once. Yeah. But in fact, we were there six times. Would have been seven, but Apollo 13 was hit by the meteor, and they came home, thank God. But at the end of the day, nobody cared anymore. We conquered space. You see, our imaginations never went any further than the moon. And even Flash Gordon, Ming the Merciless, came from the planet Mongo to establish his base where? On the moon. There was nothing There was nothing beyond the moon because that's all Kennedy said was, I want to go to the moon. That's, so very, went to the moon. that's very interesting because in, in sort of brushing along the history of toys over the years, uh, you know, I've been very aware of the phenomenon of space toys, but I never before realized that the moon landing is what killed it and I guess led back into war toys? Well, it was board games, but that oh, night, okay. that night, Billy Blastoff, Matt Mason, G.I. Joe, anything space, outer spacemen, everything, dead and gone, pulled, killed, wow. over. That was it. You would not see another space toy for nine years. When this small little event, which was this kid named Luke Skywalker boarding his X-Wing fighter, (laughs) when he got into his little ship and opened his X-Wing and said, the Force will be with you, that changed the world as we know it because that opened up the galaxy. Now there was something way beyond the moon and something infinitely more interesting. So that said, we will never see another brand like Star Wars. Every 10 years, there's another billion Star Wars fans. My five-year-old runs around the house playing with my old lightsaber because of the new charged zooted up universe that has been created by the force awakens well and, and that's today, the, uh, part of the genius of star wars is it is refreshing itself you know I, I was just talking about this the other day you know my son is eight years old and he grew up with the prequels and the original movies in the same way that I grew up with the original movies. So to him, they're all part of that world. It's all just moving along with each generation and adding new elements and new fans. Like, and now that Disney's got it, I mean, come on, Disney. Now that Disney has it, it has opened up a completely different universe as well. Yeah. Now it's Disney. And they but know, it, they know what the they're doing. Day, I think that it is a cultural phenomenon. 
And the same exact reason why the Outer Spaceman succeeded and still succeeds is because Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, Chewie, and the team, they're all heroic. And I'm telling you that at the time when the space toys, I call it the golden age of space toys, when the golden age was upon us and Matt Mason and the Outer Spacemen were, when the Xeroids were so big, it is because the heroism that these toys led the children's imagination to was unlike anything else. Remember something, that there was no such thing as a bad guy toy. Phantom, during World really? War II... Yes, never. During World War II, you didn't go out to the toy store and buy the new Hitler action figure because he was now in his new, you know, field outfit and had a new weapon. There was never a bad guy toy. What you did was you chose who was the good and the bad guy. So normally what kids would do, because they had all the marks, you know, cowboys and Indians, like the media and the theaters and the movies taught us and Hollywood taught us, you made the Indians the bad guys. Sure. But you see, they were never sold as bad guys. Now, Matt Mason, very interesting, he had two aliens in his little group. He had Callisto and Scorpio. But on their packaging, it even says Matt Mason's friends. But you see, Phantom, for the first time ever, the Outer Spacemen were billed as either friend or foe to Matt Mason. Everybody mistakes. They think that the same company made the Outer Spacemen and Matt Mason. They didn't. Clearly, it was Mattel and Colorforms. But at the end of the day, if you really go up and study what the Outer Spacemen are and where they came from, you'll see these incredible boards that Mel created, which show size-aspect ratio comparing Matt Mason to the Outer Spacemen so that they can be a synonymous group. There can be a symbiotic relationship. The Outer Spacemen can be friend or foe to Matt Mason. Sure. And that's what drove kids crazy because now, while they had the Matt Mason space station, now they could have aliens because it doesn't have to be the moon. So now Colossus Rex is ripping the arms off of Doug Davis, Sergeant Storm, (laughs) and jamming them down Matt Mason's throats because Colossus Rex is the strongest being in the universe. Well, and that's that's great because it it had to be – because I remember as a kid certain expectations I had or things I wanted from toys that weren't delivered on. And I can't even imagine, you know, media as a kid watching television back in the 60s, you saw the conflict between good and evil, between good guys and bad guys. And not having toys that were kind of specifically labeled as here are some bad guys or here are some monsters had to, had to drive kids wild a little bit. Yeah, because it was unlike what they saw on TV. Right. Look, I mean, you know, I mean, any television show had a good guy and a bad guy yeah. if that was the dramatic content of the show. But the kids had to use their imagination. Now, there's nothing bad about that. No, because no. Because kids at least use their imagination. Today, there's not, a lot of, there's, there's not a lot of imagination used. In fact, kids are told what to think and how to think. But, yeah. but at the end of the day, there is still a tactile value to, to holding an outer spaceman in your hand. Well, there's Even a difference – there's a difference between There's a difference between having a figure of just a human dude and having a figure with a giant octopus head and four arms. Right. Exactly right. <laughs> By the way, Coliforms was sued 
over Astronautilus. Oh, uh, really? Yes. The Hindu Association of America sued Coliforms because they said Astronautilus was their god Ganesh. Oh, wow. And, and it was a very funny lawsuit. It was thrown out. But if you ever, you can go online and look at Ganesh or Google Ganesh, and you will actually see that Colossus, that, uh, excuse me, Astronautilus really does look like Ganesh. Well, you know what? That, that brings us back to an, a really good point that you made earlier that what, one of the things that makes the Outer Spacemen so magical is their, while they're completely unique, they also have that, the elements that we're familiar with. You can look at them and recognize things that have been put together in a completely new and unique way, but they're very compelling. But a, a challenge that non-licensed toys have is kids see them or collectors or whoever sees them and thinks, well, what is this? And the toy kind of has to get over on you a little bit. Whereas yes. the outer spacemen, as soon as I saw them, I loved them. They felt familiar. They felt like something I knew. And, and they just have that. You're right. They have that familiarity to them. Well, it's because, it's because Orbitron from Uranus is, you know, the Metalunar mutant and, uh, and, uh, Electron from Pluto is the man from planet X. And, you know, Colossus Rex even looks familiar, but he was a Frazetta painting, which was the cover of Erie Magazine number two. Um, Commander Comet is actually St. Michael from a French book by Roland Villeneuve. It's a, it's a satanic artwork book that Mel was studying in Paris in 1958. And the image of Michael casting Lucifer into the pit is exactly the image of um, of uh, Commander Comet. Oh my gosh! It's, it's beautiful to look at, and you can see this on either my site, Instagram, or Mel's site. Um, Zodiac from Saturn, who was absolutely one of my all-time favorites, and is one of the survivors from when I was eight years old. Zodiac is actually the only one that came out of Mel's imagination. The little green Martian from Mars, Alpha 7, you know, I always said his head was very reminiscent of invaders from Mars, the sure, little alien sure. uh, in the fishbowl at the end of the film. But really what he is, he's just a quintessential, you know, green guy from Mars. But, you know, when you put the seven peacekeeping, you know, superhero team together, there is nothing like that. Let me jump ahead for a moment, Phantom, and tell you that I talk a lot to Hollywood that have a huge interest in what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And it is watched all the time. And I mean, if you could forget Hasbro and Mattel that are constantly watching, Mattel thinks that they're going to bring out a Matt Mason super exclusive for, for Toys R Us or for right. Walmart. Right, right. They they're constantly wondering if they should put an outer spaceman next to him on a blister card. I mean, there's all, there's always chatter, always noise in the background about what to do. But at the end of the day, I say to everybody from Hollywood that I talk to, and I then the list is extensive that have taken an interest in this. I say to them, do you realize that the last good guy alien on the screen, forget Superman, I mean alien, the last good guy alien was E.T.? I said, give me a break. Here you have seven of the world's most, of the universe, galaxies, most incredible beings that come together representing the best their planets have to offer to be an intergalactic peacekeeping team, making sure we're kept safe from evildoers galac on, gala uh, 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 on a galactic level. This just doesn't exist. And you know what? Along with my tagline, which is retrofuturism, which is really what they, they, they look like and the feel really is. Yeah. When you look at it that way, you say, wow, holy crap, there really isn't anything like that. And there isn't. And I think that it's really time that there should be. 
But, you know, it's a work in progress. We'll see where it goes. I mean, I, I have my personal goals. I have my personal ideas. But the line was, you know, to me, the most important thing. When I met Mel, it was at the Atlantic City Antique Show in 1991. I walked into booth 2165. I remember it like it was yesterday. Mel laughs when he hears me say that. He doesn't even know what his booth number is. And, <laughs> and, and, and I walked and I looked into a glass showcase all lit up with a ton of stuff. And I stared at like something that was like reminiscent. I think I know what it is. It looks familiar. I think I do know what this is. And as the layers and layers just kept peeling away until I just zoned in on 1968 in Brooklyn, New York, in my grandmother's house, you know, not stuck to her gold couch in the living room, <laughs> I realized, oh my God, I know what these are. Now, I was 31. I hadn't seen them in 23 years. Oh. They were gone. And I didn't even know that my, 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 my two that survived was in a box somewhere in an attic somewhere. I don't even remember because that was found 10 years later. And, and I started to cry when I found them because, oh my God, they were really mine. But sure. when I stood there and I stared at them, I said, oh my God, I know what these are. And then a voice from behind me said, a real deep voice, he says, so son, do you know what those are? And I turned around and I looked and it was Mel Burnkrant. And I spent almost the entire weekend there talking to him. I spent an, a ridiculous amount of money in that booth buying everything there was to buy from him. <laughs> and then six months later, I was online 5 a.m. to get into the same exact show because it was twice a year to run right to booth 2165 to be the first one there to see him once again. Now, there prior was, prior to the show, did you have because 91 was pretty early in in the world of toy collecting. Did you have any idea who Mel was? No. Nope. OK. Never heard of him. I, I, listen, I was always a comic and uh, card fan, a comic and uh, a card collector, mm -hmm. uh, non-sport card. And you know, I bought my I bought my Fantastic Four in nineteen. My I bought my Fantastic Four number one in 1972. Oh. I was 12 years old, and I and 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 again, screaming and crying. My mother spent seventy six dollars on you know uh, what is today a nine point four. Fantastic Four number one. Oh and my god! And I still have it looking at, and, and that was the best seventy six bucks ever spent. I <laughs> but, but that being said, um, you know, Mel, we would just sit and we would talk forever and ever and ever. There was no email, there was no cell phone, there was no there was no computer, there, and he would never take a phone call. Maybe he would answer a handwritten letter, and I've got the three examples of handwritten letter that he's ever wrote to me back before email existed, but. We became friends. And then I saw his second series and his fully carded set of second series. And I said, I have to own them. And I did a deal with him where I would pay him off over time. It was wildly expensive at the time. Sure. I was just a kid on Wall Street and I didn't have that kind of money. And But he knew me. He trusted me. He liked me. So he allowed me to pay it off over a couple of years. And that's how I got my first uh, carded set of the second series. What I didn't tell you, Phantom, was that while Mel was building this second set of Outer Spacemen, this second series of six, Call Farms at the last minute was so terrified about the space race and its end of, of uh, the, toy, the space toy industry that they renamed the second series The World of the Future. They were terrified to have any single words whatsoever even relate to, the, to anything about space. Oh, wow. Space was a dirty word. So six sets, six sets of six came in from Hong Kong as nothing other than test 
samples, fully carded. So 36 individual figures, six sets of six, came into the country. Today, while I know where 34 of the 36 figures are, I'm happy to say I've got two full sets. And, you know, these are half a million dollar sets. And, you know, I know where every one of them, I know where every second series character is. Because if there is a holy grail of toy collecting, you can put up 10 bat play sets or JLA play sets, and I don't think you'll come close to a fully carded second set. And I've had unbelievably wealthy people say to me, I want a set, what will it cost me? And I can't help them. Right. Because... It just doesn't exist on an open market. And I was asked by a grading company that grades uh, toys, you know, um, CGA, or no, whatever it's called, CGC. So um, whoever grades toys, I was asked to grade them. And I said, why? What are you going to give them? What, do you, what, what are you going to compare them to? And why would I bother letting them out of my sight? They are within my sight yeah. 24 hours a day. And they're so, not going anywhere, so who cares? Right. They're not going anywhere. It's like owning the Mona Lisa. Right, so, right. So, you know, Mel was so busy with the second set, and then that entire thing crashed. So when I met Mel, and it was now 10 years or so, no, about eight years into our relationship, I said to him, sitting in his toy loft, in his in his toy shop, in his home, I said, God forbid you pass. What will happen to the outer spaceman? Now I'm a big shot on Wall Street. I'm not the kid that I was eight years earlier. Let me run. Let me build this brand. Let me run with the ball. Let me do what I do best. Let me build a business. Let me build a brand. Let me build an industry. Let me fix the problems if they exist with the outer space center and let's bring them back. And he said, go. So I began with the registrations and the copyrights. The second series had never even been copyrighted, no less registrations. All the registrations had fallen out. They were never, ever uh, renewed. And then began the fight that I had because if you really think about it, well, you know, there's a – there's an outer spaceman called Colossus. Yeah. Somebody, I think, has a Colossus out there who's pretty famous. Yeah. So, <laughs> and then on the second series, there's a guy named Cyclops. Well, that's a problem. <laughs> so there were there were definitely some problems along the way. Um, as a matter of fact, there were six problems along the way, including the fact that Orbitron was, in fact, taken uh, on a whole bunch of different kind of marks and uh, he was very, very shortly, for a very short time, Orbitron, the man from Uranus, was actually going to be called Zorbitron. And I actually have framed that six-month um, threshold um, uh, certificate where he is called Zorbitron. But at the end of the day, I won uh, I won all the outer spacemen's names and registrations. It was a big fight, cost a ton of money. But at the end of the day, I won. The older registrations are under me and Mel. So, you know, it's clear sailing then. Well, and that's, that's amazing because, you know, the big boys don't fight like that. Mattel and Hasbro don't fight like that. We see it all the time where they just rename a character rather than sticking with what it traditionally has been. So that, that's, that in and of itself is amazing. You cannot change the outer spaceman. Mel, it is his, it is his dying wish to keep them true. You cannot change them. You cannot alter them in any way. You can make them better, bigger, faster, stronger. Maybe bring them into the new, you know, millennium a little bit with muscles and and a different kind of physical appearance and tactile sure. sense. But you cannot change them. They are omnipresent. They are forever. And and there is a reason why they are still so successful. It's because they've never been changed. Superman does not look like Superman anymore. Neither does Batman. 
they've changed throughout time. It's kind of like the Catholic Church. They change a lot depending upon the time. Yeah. The Jewish synagogues don't change anything. <laughs> so I can tell you, the outer space men, they're Jewish. They're not changing. They're not, they're never changing. Revealed here. One thing about their religion. Catholics can change all the time. But, but, but that said, you know, these guys, you know, when it was, when it was that I was successful with all the registrations and the lawyers and the, t- and not changing the names and winning the day on all the names, you know, then it was the 45th anniversary. It was time to make the graphic novel and bring them back. So it was a great script. I found an all-star team. My artist was uh, was uh, Rudolf Montemayor. It was a global event because Rudolf lives in uh, in Manila, in the Philippines. Uh, Mark Borstel, who was my colorer and my letterer, he, uh, he lives in uh, Sao Paulo. And the entire book was created literally online, going back and forth 100 times a day, you know, on the internet and via email and, and, and any delivery services that could handle, you know, the gigantic uh, artwork that needs to be transmitted. Sure. And the graphic novel was a, a huge success. And it, it it really was what opened the door to the introduction by Big Matt from O'Neill and Blyos. You know, Big Matt had been around forever. I had known him. He was always a fan. And it was um, it was 2010 at Comic-Con when I had my booth that he brought the the four horsemen into the booth and we sat down and we spoke. Oh, that's beautiful. And you know, Mel was very impressed with their work. He thought that they're, you know, the, that if there was a candidate to do it, that they were it. And you know, it was a 5-year license, it was a 5-year relationship, and I I think they I think they bit off a little bit more than they could chew because they didn't know that Mel would be breathing down their neck. Right. But I could, but I could tell you that with his tutelage, with his instruction, with his incredible brilliance, that, you know, the outer spacemen are successful. They are as successful as they are in the Glios format because of Mel, because he would not accept anything other than perfection. And there was a lot of, you know, friction at times because the horsemen, they don't like to be told what to do. And they thought that they had it and nailed it. But even they relented and acquiesced at the end and said, it's better that Mel does it. Well, and that's in going through some of the pages on his site, uh, you see notes like, check the the cant on this sculpt. Look at right. the size of these eyes. Look at the set. I mean, it's it's incredible. You know, on the one hand, yes, the horsemen are doing this work and are being guided. But on the other hand, Mel's love for his creations is in every single word on that site. I mean, it's amazing to look at at his vision. You know, he had other lines of toys, which you can find, you know, throughout his website. Some of them are absolutely brilliant, and some were wildly successful as well, like his baby face. But, you know, I'll say, I'll say this. He was before his time. He did not, res- deserve, he did not receive the proper recognition. And if, it were, if I were involved with my money back then, it would have been a whole different story because Mel would have – it would have been proven to be the American iconic hero in toy creation that he should have been recognized as, not now, way so late in the game as he's recognized as so brilliant. He should have had more um, lines of toys be recognized and produced and manufactured because his stuff is unbelievable. And I know Marvin Glass, 
because I know his daughter. I know Marvin Glass is brilliant with King Zor and Robot Commando and Mr. Machine. I mean, he is a recognized iconoclast being. I get it. He created some of the most incredible toys. I still have them minted in the box because he's brilliant. But you know what? Mel is equally as Mel is equally as brilliant. And the difference between a guy like Marvin Glass and Mel is that Mel was more artist. Yeah. Mar, uh, Mr. Glass was engineer. He was brilliant in his engineering. But Mel is an artist, a true artist, uh, in every sense of the word. He see things. You, Mel could sit down with a bowl of Legos in 15 minutes and make the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> I sit down with a bowl of Legos. In an hour, it's something phallic. <laughs> Mel is um, – so – at that point, you know, at that point, we did the deal with the horsemen. We went ahead with waves, you know, one through five. There were a ton, you know, of fans that were enjoying these, as there still are. And then the license came to an end. The horsemen were moving on, and I was faced with an extraordinary challenge. It's what to do next. So I arranged a deal wherein I took over the entire operation. I bought the molds, the digital art, the files. I bought the packaging art. I, bu- I bought everything. I bought them out of everything. And now the Holy Trinity, which is Mel, myself, and Big Matt, you know, Dowdy, who I love, from uh, O'Neill, who created Glios, you know, we are now the, 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 the force to be reckoned with because now we are doing the Outer Spaceman. And, and there's going to be four releases. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm moving very quickly with this. I'm not going to waste a lot of time. The molds exist. I'm going to take advantage of them. Um, there's a new character coming. She is way, way late to arrive, but I'm happy that I get to do her. Her name is um, her name is Astrodite. She is, oh uh, wow. She is on this website. You can see her all over the place. The woman from Venus, correct? Well, that's right. The woman from yes. Venus. You know, we did introduce Terra Firma, the first Earth outer space woman. Uh, Earth is finally represented, and she sold out huge. Um, still today, I can't even you know get my hands on a carded. Uh, painted infinity version of terra firma yeah it's just you know she just sells out everywhere she goes colossus rex sold out almost overnight interesting that colossus which is everyone's favorite he was the part of the he was the last two original osm to be created in the last wave there were six in that wave and uh, colossus which was part of the final wave you know that set was actually 160 dollars mm-hmm. today just Colossus alone trades for between 150 and 200. I actually saw a Colossus trade for over 300 a couple of months ago on eBay. So, you know, my wife always says, because she's in the fashion industry and she's worked with a lot of top people, she says, you know, Colossus Rex, that's Beyonce. Only focus on Colossus and as being <laughs> Beyonce. Because when she was with Destiny's Child, she was a nobody. But when she broke off, she was everything. And my first release for 2016 will be a very limited edition, one-off reproduction of the Colossus in a new limited edition color. And I'm now giving everyone a spoiler alert and giving something away extraordinary. Colossus Rex originally in 1968 had a a color variation, which was actually, actually an accident. There is a blue Colossus Rex. Look on my Instagram page. You'll see a little girl holding a green one and a blue one. They're both mint out of the package, but you can clearly see one is green and one is blue. I'm not going to do the green one again because people are paying top dollar sure, sure. for the green ones. I'm not going to destroy their investment. Yeah. But what I'm going to do is bring out a blue and gold. Blue and gold meaning that the accessories this time will be gold. Uh, and I'm certainly marketing it to the University of Michigan where my daughter and uh, went to college. 
And um, so maybe we can get it sold in Ann Arbor at the end then. There you go. And I can even put little M stickers, you know, gold blue stickers <laughs> on his cheeks. So we're going to do blue and gold. He's going to be the first one seen in 2016. And we're going to go from there. But I promise, Aphrodite, she's coming. Her head is sculpted. Her body is done. And all we need, or we're just missing one simple chest piece, which will house the helmet so that it doesn't, you know, flap all around and will mm-hmm. sit tight. And then we are going forward with Aphrodite. So she'll be here in 2016 for sure. Oh, but that's my, wonderful. But my point is, I'm not, I'm not abandoning this brand. I'm continuing. There is no abandoning it. There is no going back. I've purchased everything there is to purchase. Half my property is sitting in China. I will never even see what it is that I bought. Sure. But I don't care because the outer spaceman must survive. Well, and, and listen, you're, you're absolutely right in moving quickly because this brand is still red hot right now. Uh, I purchased the first wave of Four Horsemen Outer Space Men when it was first offered, and I absolutely loved them. I bought those in one of the holiday editions, had a blast playing with them, had a blast reviewing them, uh, and then they they did linger for a little while, so the second wave I kind of put off buying for a little while and missed out. I mean, that's they're, they're so hot, and looking at prices now to try and fill in what I'm missing – Man, they're, they're, you go online and they are still very hard to find. Like you said, trading for a lot of money. I mean, this, this brand is hot. Yeah. The, uh, Gamma X and, uh, Gamma X, Terra Firma and Colossus literally are, are, they're untouchable. There's, there's a, there's a Colossus right now on eBay for 160 bucks. There's a Gamma X right now for a hundred bucks. And actually their packaging is not mint. So, you know, the really super high-end mint stuff, mint, mint, I mean, this stuff is over 200 bucks. Yeah. And you know something funny is my clients, because I supply a ton of people every single year with so many figures, people want me to begin their collections, to continually add to and to finish off and top off. Sure, even sure. Even the vintage ones. You know, these, I have to pay top dollar. Everyone yells at me, why am I paying so much <laughs> for my figures? It's because there are no more. Right. What's out so, there is it. That's it. So, you know, I'm literally, for my clients, buying top, paying top dollar for my own toys that I made just so they can have them. But they don't care. They don't care. And listen, there's big names that collect the outer space men. You would be amazed at some of the big Hollywood toy collectors and comic collectors that still, you know, write and say, I need X, Y, and Z. And I got to fill their orders. And they don't care what they pay. Oh, sure. Well, and there's nothing else on, because I collect a lot of different things. Uh, from Universal Monsters to G.I. Joe to Masters of the Universe to whatever, nothing in my collection looks like the Outer Space Men. They, they stand alone on their shelf like they, they are singular amongst everything else that I've got. And they stand out for some reason unlike anything else in the world. Absolutely. And- and that is what makes them so eternal. I'm telling you, they, it seems as though they have been around forever. You know, you know, Orbitron says in one of the pages of the graphic novel, I'm over 10,000 years old. You know what? I believe it. And both Mel and I, and I don't want to sound like a lunatic any more than I probably already do, but I don't want to sound like a <laughs> lunatic, but Mel and I each have a single experience a decades apart from one another, but his concerned Cyclops and the creation of Cyclops, his final paint job, and Mel being called to dinner by his wife, and when he returned, something was very different on his workplace desk. And you can see what I'm talking about on his website. I have an extraordinary experience with Mistron, who was a part of the second series as well, 
And, you know, again, I, I, don't, I really don't feel like talking about it because people will think I'm crazy. But, but there Man, is we're toy collectors. We are crazy. There is something very real about these things. And everybody and anybody who, who plays with them and collects them, I tell you, sooner or later, they know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, now you know, Phantom, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary, and I'm in control of the brand. Yes, sir. And I'm going to tell you. We have some extraordinary stuff coming up because even if you eliminate the fact that a child could have labeled the outer spaceman originally a friend or foe, we're going to see the first bad guy ever, outer spaceman, and he's going to be in the exact scale as he was in 1968. Oh, wow, really? So we're going to see some. So I'm giving away some meat and potatoes here in this interview. That's fantastic. But, but I can promise you that I'm working with a company in Japan right now that that will produce something extraordinary. And, yes, he will be in vinyl because oh. the world is just so fooby crazy. That's beautiful. And that's uh, – yeah, yeah. And that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, you know, moving forward, have you guys considered and, – and you just answered the question – considered other formats, other styles because designer toys, collector toys are, are so big right now? Well, I'll tell you. You know, I'm, I'm very interested in the 3D printing world, and I've been really exploring a Colossus Rex, Randy Bowen-type bust sculpture. Oh, sure. Uh, like something wildly incredible, where his mouth is open, some incredible scream, and he's holding up his mace, something with big girth to it, with real great importance and real heavy weightedness to it, something unbelievable that only Colossus Rex could appear to be. But I'll tell you, the pricing on the 3D stuff is ridiculous. Yeah. Now, I am looking for a reverse engineer. I haven't really found anybody willing to commit and what I consider to be stable enough, uh, a businessman or even human, to, uh, <laughs> to, to, to be mandated to this job. Because I would expect that this would be a hell of a big job to try and articulate something like this. But, you know, I'm only looking for minimal points of articulation, if any. But the point is, if I want a big Randy Bowen you know, sculpture like Colossus Rex, that's going to be a lot of money to create. And it's going to be a lot of money to the buyer. Yeah. So, you yeah. Know, I think that has to wait until this science becomes a little bit more mass market and maybe even, you know, a little bit um, more generalized amongst the public so that it's simpler, easier and cheaper to produce. But vinyl, that's a whole different story. Now, every time Mel looks at one of my bull marks he says, and there's those goddamn bull marks. <laughs> you, know, you know, the bull marks were an unlicensed Japanese event wherein nobody knew about them because they were solely for the Japanese market. And right. then one day the ones showed up in the U.S. Now, I've got all of them, you know, a loose collection and a mint, you know, sealed package, factory package collection. And, you know, they are magnificent. They, they, they are stunning because they're just different. But they do have this incredible feeling to them. And, and now, for those that don't know, these are the smaller vinyl versions of the Outer Space Man that were unlicensed, that were just produced uh, overseas. Is that correct? They're actually larger. They're eight and nine inches tall. Oh, where, really? Yeah, where where my Coliform's original 68 vintage pieces were six and seven inches tall, except for out of seven, but they were six and seven inches. These guys are like eight, you know, eight and nine inches tall. They're okay. quite large. But, you know, they are hollow. They have very, very limited articulation. Maybe a helmet can slightly turn, mm -hmm. but pretty much it's the arms go up and down. That's it. But, you know, there were only 200 of each of those made. So, you know, to find one in the packaging is ridiculous. 
So, you know, the, the bull marks, they are extraordinary and they hold a different flavor because everyone is vinyl crazy. They yeah. love this stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, the soft vinyl toy. So, you know what? There is, I have no problem in a full scale six or seven inch outer spaceman coming back in vinyl. I think it would be a fantastic addition and I think people would love it. Well, and that's, that's one thing about today's toy market is you can see the same characters in many different formats from a three and three quarter inch figure to a big vinyl toy to a six inch figure. And I think the outer spacemen lend themselves probably to many different styles of toy. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And, and, you know, there is nothing wrong with vinyl. It happens to be a fantastic medium. Sure. And, and it's affordable because quite honestly, everyone asks me to do the originals. You know what? I don't even have that money for the originals. Yeah. It's like, would you rather spend, uh, you know, would you rather spend a hundred dollars on a bunch of Glios figures or a hundred dollars on one vintage rubber bendable toy? Right. They're not going to sell. And unless I've got a property behind me and I'm ordering 10,000 dozen, you know, like my wife orders for her clothing company, you know, out of China, unless I'm doing that kind of volume, nobody can afford those minimums. Yeah. Because even on the Glios side, I've got a minimum of 300. Now, I don't mind. I'm going to bring a lot of the Colossus Rex, the new ones, of the blue and gold. I'm going to bring a lot of blue and gold Rex into the country because everyone wants one, and he's Beyonce. But, right. You know, but, but I'm not bringing him back. Because in a, in a in a rubber bendable form, because nobody will be able to afford them. Yeah, yeah, and that's an interesting thing is that it does seem like the uh, bendable style figure has seen a little bit of a resurgence lately. But it's all with licensed stuff that has a lot of marketing power behind it. That's correct. You know, I'm I'm, I'm behind the eight ball a little because I'm backwards. And what I mean by that is Harry Potter was a book, then he was a movie, then he was a toy. Well, I'm a little backwards. I was a toy, <laughs> right? Then I was a book, and now I'm trying to be a movie, <laughs> right? Right. So it's a little difficult to go backwards, but you know what? I'm doing my best. But we're also looking at a lot of stuff this year as far as a YouTube channel. I would love uh, an outer space and YouTube channel where you know we get to just do these great action scenes with the OSM because you know what? Whether I've got a 250 or a 350 thousand you know person thick database. As long as it ain't those 200 baby boomers eating the neighbor's kids. As long as I've got a big number like that, you know what? It's still not enough. Yeah. I need millions. Yeah, need and millions. that's... So while people are wasting their time looking at the, at the size of the Kardashians' ass, you know, who, by the way, there are six sets of outer spacemen living in those butts. <laughs> I, I'll tell you, while, you're, while they're wasting time looking at that, they're missing the outer spacemen. Yeah. Yeah, and well, and that's the thing is once you get a foothold in, you know, all the social media, the Facebook, the Twitter, the YouTube, everything, like it it just grows from there because once people find out, oh, this this is a thing and it's ongoing and it's coming back, like I I do think it it will spread. I do think it'll be one of those sort of viral things that as the word of mouth gets around, it will just expand on its own. You know, people always say to me, you know, why aren't you in Barnes and Noble? Why aren't you in uh, in uh, Toys R Us? Why aren't you here and there? You know, my wife, she knows the buyers at Toys R Us. And even if they agreed, which they wouldn't, but even if they agreed, you know what would happen? I would be put across the aisle from a Batman section and no kid would ever turn around. They'd be yeah. staring at Batman. Yeah. Where right behind them was the outer spaceman. What I need is a property. And you know what? Even my daughter, even one of my uh, twins, 
the because uh, I have older twins. Even one of them says, "Dad, I don't think I think you need something in the middle. You you can't go from the action figures right to a movie. It would have to be something immense, like life changing event for that to happen. You need something in the middle, and that's where I'm thinking a YouTube channel would be extraordinary. Yes, I also and I'm and I'm also looking for a web developer. It's time for an OSM game. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, well, and there's so many different little elements. Whether you could get some animation done, whether you could get I, there, there's so many things that can very easily be done with the artist community now. Yes, to yes. enhance Technolo- it. Technology is extraordinary. It's offering the OSM a way in which to come back even bigger than they are in such a way that I will now attract more generations. Yes. Multi-generations of age can now become a part of this. And if I go cloud, social, and mobile, then the holy trinity comes true, and then you could get yourself something extraordinary. Then the next thing you know, the Halo, the World of Warcraft, and uh, the Minecraft, and all of that stuff that, that eventually turns into a film, then all of a sudden you know, you start to become a much more serious property. So to wrap this thing up, uh, we we have gotten a beautiful look at the history of the Outer Space Men and your involvement with the Outer Space Men. Uh, we've got a pretty good idea of what's going on going forward. Are you know over the years since you know ninety one when you sort of rediscovered the line? Which, by the way, that feeling of oh my gosh, all of a sudden I remember this thing from my childhood is amazing. That that recognition that oh I had that thing that's what that is I remember that is beautiful but since ninety one you've clearly been thinking about outer space men a lot uh, what is is there you know aside from a movie is there toy wise sort of a dream like is there a, a vehicle or is there anything that you personally have thought man it would be so great to be able to add this to the line. The Outer Spaceman accessories, you know, we always wanted the horsemen to do it. They were reluctant to do it. Um, I'll do it. It's not a problem. You know, the if you go online and you look at the OSM uh, Hot Wheels vehicles, you know, Mel had designed and created and hand-sculpted the, the vehicles, which, thank God, I own. I'm looking at right now. If you go on my Instagram page or Mel's site, you'll see the vehicles. They're magnificent. Each one is different. Each one is unique. Each one is looking at a Hope Diamond. They shine I'm telling you something, Phantom. If you were to see them in person, you would lose your breath. It is like un- it is unlike anything you'd ever seen. Now, these were taken to Mattel for the Hot Wheels division, and they did pass on it for whatever reason. But uh, what's remarkable is that these cre- these were hand created by Mel. Six months after Mattel pa- passed, by the way, they stole all of Mel's paint schemes and brought out their neon painted vehicles, which are in fact the colors of the current vehicles of the Outer Spaceman uh. Uh, Hot Wheels that, that that are in my collection now. But I'll tell you this: we're gonna. I am seriously looking at vehicles, toys, stations, accessories. There is nothing that is going to stop me for sure. Um, what I'm interested in doing is taking it as far as I can because I think my toys are better than Matt Mason. And I think my toys offer a completely different experience than Matt Mason. Mm. While I'm looking right now on my desk at my Matt Mason collection, mine from when I was a kid sitting next to my uh, Electron from when I was a kid, there there is a, a tremendous, you know, reminiscent and love of Matt Mason. 
You cannot love the outer space without having some feelings for Matt Mason. They were hand in hand. And I am not discounting him at all. I just think my outer spacemen are better. And I think I'm allowed to think that, but, but at the end of the day, I think it's a better toy. It just gives you a greater opportunity for imagination. And we like aliens better than astronauts. For sure. That has, that has been proven over and over again. And, you know, Tom Hanks, love him. Talk to them, talk to him during the whole craziness with the Matt Mason film. You know, how can you have the Matt Mason film and at least not have a Nick Fury kind of, uh, you know, cameo at the end where, you know, oh, did you ever hear of Mr. Stark of the Avengers Initiative? Yeah. Well, how can you not have the outer spacemen, you know, be staring at Matt Mason through some, you know, crystal ball on their central space station. In the oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, that would have just been fantastic because that's when the audience would have stood up and applauded. Yeah. But, you know, those two I don't think are destined to meet anytime soon. So, you know, that said, I'm moving forward. There is no stopping me. You want vehicles. You want play sets. You want toys. You want recreations. You want glow in the dark. It's all coming. I promise. Man, that is awesome. Gary, Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, before we go, where can we find you online? Where can we see all these wonderful pictures? Uh, give us the Twitter, the Instagram, the websites. So, um, the uh, www, obviously, theouterspacemen.com. And, of course, that's plural, theouterspacemen.com. That's me. Go to Mel's site. It's much better than mine because, <laughs> he's because again, he made he made the Sistine Chapel out of a bunch of pixels. <laughs> me, I just did something phallic. So, <laughs> So go to Mel's site. It's www.melburncrant.com or just Google the Outer Spaceman because you will find thousands and thousands of places in which to hit or click. Um, it's uh, it's at the Outer Spaceman on either fa- um, Twitter or Instagram. But uh, your easiest and your best bet is to just Google the Outer Spaceman. Anybody and everybody with an idea, I want them to reach out to me. I'm I'm I work from home, so I'm here 24/7 in my OSM little cave that I love to work in. So, you know, I want friends. I want input. I want ideas. Anybody, you know, want to come on board? I don't need a partner, but if you're that spectacular and you can write or reverse engineer or create or sculpt, come on over because the 50th anniversary is coming and this will be the biggest event you have ever seen. That is incredible. Gary, thank you so much. Uh, we will absolutely keep in touch with you over the course of the next year to, to keep tabs on what's going on and to let the listeners in on what's happening. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. Phantom, thank you so very much. Take, take care. Have a great day. You too, man. Bye. Remember, you can find the Needless Things podcast on iTunes and on Stitcher. Please rate us. Please share us. And, of course, go to NeedlessThingsSite.com where you can download the podcast and also find five days a week worth of nerdy articles about your hobby interests. Next week, we will have a special about superhero television, or comic book television, I guess. The week after that, we have a very special interview and a discussion panel about Harley Quinn, just in general. You know why? Because it's Valentine's Day. We love Harley Quinn, and we love Princess Superstar. That's right, Princess Superstar is on the Needless Things podcast, which is pretty awesome. And that's, what's what's with the New York interviews? Gary, Princess Superstar, is there a New York connection? Could I be headed up there for Toy Fair? No, no I'm not, because I have no money. Uh, which brings me to... 
uh, fundraising ideas. Do you guys have any brilliant ideas about how to raise money for needless things, for Phantom Troublemaker to do stuff uh, to entertain you people? Let me know. Shoot me an email at phantomtroublemaker at gmail.com or be sure to join the Needless Things Podcast Facebook group. Give us your input. Feel free to join up and just go post a thing. If you have a toy, if you are doing a movie, anything, a documentary, whatever, I'd love to talk to you. Contact me. Let me know what you want to do. We'll have you on the show. Heck, I have to do 52 episodes this year, people. I need subject matter. Toy Fair and Comic-Con only happened twice, or I guess once each. You know what I mean. Anyway, I love you guys.